Please wait. That's what it says. Please wait. Okay, let's look at Matthew 5. And we're going to start studying verses 38 to 42. It says, You have heard that it was said, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You know, one element of the great American philosophy of life is that we all have certain inalienable rights. Uh, it even says that in the Declaration of Independence. Uh, so that we are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, so we are big on rights. Uh, in fact, these days, the demand for rights in our society has reached a fever pitch, hasn't it? Uh, people are hyper-conscious of their rights. Movements have arisen for civil rights, abortion rights, homosexual rights, women's rights, transgender rights, children's rights, voting rights, and the list goes on and on. Uh, people are very conscious of their perceived rights. In fact, it's not uncommon in our society to hear someone say, you're violating my rights. You, know, you can't do that to me. I'll see you in court. Uh, and deep down in the human heart is a retaliatory, vengeful, spiteful spirit. It's part of the curse of sin, and it's there in all of us. And sometimes it comes out in the strangest ways. Uh, I read a story about an armed robbery that occurred back in February out in Pasadena, California. Apparently, a man went into a Roscoe's Chicken and Waffles restaurant uh, without a mask, and he was told uh, that they couldn't serve him without a mask, and he was welcome to return if he got a mask. Uh, well, he apparently felt that his right to a chicken and waffles dinner was being violated, uh, so he returned a few minutes later with a gun and held up the place, and the only thing he took was chicken, waffles, and syrup. Uh, so, so, so you see, deep down inside of the human heart is this retaliatory, get-even kind of thing. In our society, we often make heroes out of the kind of people who refuse to take any guff from anyone. Uh, they're seen as the strong, the tough, the courageous, the macho. And our society looks down on the meek and the mild, the non-retaliating, the, the gentle, the forgiving, the gracious, uh, the merciful person who demands nothing from anyone. Society deems such people to be weaklings and cowards. I mean, think about who society idolizes as heroes. Uh, Americans love John Wayne and Clint Eastwood and Chuck Norris movies. Why? Because they epitomize the, the crusty, tough, take-nothing-from-nobody kind of folk hero who really symbolizes American attitudes. Uh, that's part of human nature, to not let anyone get away with anything until you've told them or let them know that they can't do that to you. Uh, the inordinate concern for one's own rights comes from 
inordinate selfishness and leads to inordinate lawlessness. Uh, when our supreme concern is getting and keeping what we think is rightfully ours, then whoever or whatever uh, that gets in our way, including the law, becomes expendable. Uh, since it's not possible for everyone to have everything that he wants, uh, to, to insist on our own way invariably tramples on the rights and welfare of others. Respect for the law and for the welfare of others uh, is always among the first and major casualties of asserting and demanding our own rights. Uh, when self is in the foreground, everything else and everyone else is pushed into the background. And if you have to use force to gain your rights, so be it. Uh, basically, it's at the heart of the Jewish miscomprehension of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Uh, in their thinking, it meant give them what they're due. Uh, that's the way it was applied in Jesus' time. Uh, it had become a license for vengeance, a basis for a personal vendetta. Uh, it was seen as biblical permission to have a grudge, to strike back uh, at someone. And Jesus comes along and he says, if someone hits you on the right cheek, then give him your left. Uh, if someone sues you and takes your shirt, give him your coat. If someone forces you to go to a mile, one mile, go two miles. If someone needs what you've got, give it to them or loan it to them. That's antithetical to everything in human society. That doesn't cut it with the fallen sinful human heart. C.S. Lewis found the idea of the need for rights or struggle, uh, the struggle to get even, uh, so characteristic of the human heart that he used it as the basis of his argument for moral law in the universe in his book, Mere Christianity. Uh, everyone has that in them, this, that innate sense of justice, which I believe is a part of the Imago Dei, the image of God uh, in man. But in the fall, that sense of justice became perverted into a vengeful spirit. Uh, and it isn't that if a person does something wrong, we want it to be made right, uh, to uphold the law and to maintain a righteous standard so that uh, God's righteous standard is glorified. No, we... We want, rather, it's that we want to get even. Uh, and that's the perversion of the moral righteousness that was given to us in the creation of God. Uh, we now have a retaliatory spirit. That's what James talks about in James 4, 1 and 2. He asks the question, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts within you, among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. When the sins of lust and covetousness are combined with a sense of justice that has been perverted into vengeance and retaliation, you end up with fights and squabbles and murders. And so in our society, everyone fights for their rights. And we're so big on rights right now that we're just sort of shoving the law aside. Uh, we have a vengeful society if they don't get their rights. I, I've had parents say to me, you know, it's just so much easier to give my kids what they want rather than to try to discipline them. Uh, and basically, that's what our society is doing. Uh, it's giving people what they demand rather than disciplining them for violating the law. Uh, contrast the fight for rights, the demand for what you believe to be your due with what a, the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9. 
Here's what he said. Verse 1, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? And he says, verse 4, Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? In other words, Paul says, I'm a minister of the gospel. Have I no right to earn a living doing that? Uh, do I have a... Uh, do I have to work at a second job in order to earn my living? Uh, don't I have a right to be paid for my ministry? And then he says, don't I have a right to marry if I so choose and take along a wife on my journeys? Uh, don't I have a right to those things? The answer is yes. And then he says at the end of verse 12, nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. In other words, Paul says, my life is all about setting aside my rights. Paul didn't always win the fight against his innate fallen nature. Uh, in Acts 23, Paul had been taken into custody and he found himself on trial in front of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council in Jerusalem. And so he told him very honestly, brethren, I've lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up until this day. In other words, I don't have anything to accuse myself about. Uh, I can look you in the eye and say there's no charge that can be laid justly to my account. I'm innocent. Well, that absolutely infuriated Ananias the high priest. Uh, he was a wretched individual. This is a different Ananias than the one Paul had met at the time of his conversion. Ananias was a common name. But Ananias the high priest was a vile man. He had stolen the tithes that belonged to the common order of priest to pad his own coffers. He had committed immoralities. Uh, he had authorized the assassinations of people who were in his way. Uh, he was a vile prostitution of everything that the priestly office was to represent. And if anything came his way in terms of punishment, it would have been justly deserved. But verse 2 tells us that the high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him in the mouth. Uh, the verb there means to deliver a sharp blow. In other words, he says, punch him in the mouth. And no doubt one of the soldiers let Paul have it in the mouth. And here's Paul's reaction. Verse 3, then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? Paul really lost it. Uh, he says, in effect, you ordered to be, me to be struck. Well, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Uh, a whitewashed wall was a representation in that culture of hypocrisy. Uh, in those days, a wall was nothing more than bricks made out of mud with straw to bind them together. And so in order to make the wall look a little better, look good, they would paint it over with whitewash. And... When you call uh, someone, when you said someone was whitewashed, uh, you were calling them a hypocrite. And that's what Jesus called this same group back in Matthew 23, when he said they were like wash, whitewashed tombs. Uh, so Paul says, God's going to strike you, you corrupt hypocrite. That, that was his flesh talking. And that was his normal response before he came to Christ. And that was the instinct of the sin principle, but it wasn't right. And the people were shocked in verse 4 because they said, do you revile God's high priest? In other words, what are you doing? You're reviling God's high priest. You're not supposed to do that. You know, they didn't get so excited 
when Ananias had somebody punch him in the mouth, even though he hadn't done anything, and that was a violation of the law, apparently they thought it was okay for the high priest to have one of his henchmen slug somebody in the mouth, but it wasn't all right for the man to retaliate. Uh, and that was their double standard. And the tradition of the rabbis said that he who strikes the cheek of an Israelite strikes, as it were, the glory of God. Uh, so it was considered a serious offense, and yet the high priest was able to get away with it. Well, Paul responds in verse 5, and he says, I was not aware, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Perhaps Ananias didn't have on his high priestly robes that day. After all, according to just a little bit before this, in chapter 22, verse 30, the Sanhedrin had been ordered to assemble by the Roman military commander that was there. So perhaps Ananias had to quickly get there and didn't have on his robes. Uh, anyway, Paul says, I didn't know that. If I'd known he was a high priest, I wouldn't have done it because it's written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Uh, Exodus 22, 28 says that. And so Paul says, I was wrong, and he condemned himself by the scriptures. I really like Paul's response. He admitted he was wrong, and he even brought the scriptures in to condemn himself. Uh, he apologized. What's interesting to me is that everything he said was true. Ananias was a filthy hypocrite, and God would bring judgment on him. And so until this day, he's in hell. Uh, God did strike him. But that is not the way we're to respond in personal relationships. We're to be willing to surrender our rights. Uh, Romans 14, chapters 14 and 15, tell us that we're not to do anything that would cause our Christian brother to stumble into sin. We're to give up our rights and refuse to use our liberty. Uh, we have rights, but rights can harm and offend others. Uh, and if pushed too far, if pushed far enough, uh, our grasping desire for what we believe we're due and our rights will eventually obliterate the law. We just ignore it. And this is precisely the issue to which the Lord speaks here in Matthew 5. Uh, he contrasts the ethics of his kingdom, which is forgiveness, seeking nothing, no defensiveness, no self-protection, no rights for me, with a retaliatory, spiteful, vengeful, grudging spirit, which characterizes society. Now, let's see what he says specifically. And as Jesus speaks in this particular part of the sermon, he is speaking directly at the form of religion developed by the scribes and Pharisees. They believed they had attained self-righteousness on their own merit. Uh, they believed that they were able to enter the kingdom of God on the basis of their own self-righteousness, that they had attained a standard of excellence by law, by legalism, by ritual, and, the mask, and they masked the reality of their sinfulness. And so Jesus is busy in the Sermon on the Mount, ripping off their mask, stripping their hypocrisies, so that they will see themselves as wretched sinners. You say, well, isn't that rather unkind? No, the kindest thing you can ever do to anyone is to show them their sin so that they know, understand that they need a Savior. Uh, no one's ever going to come to the Savior until they know that they need one. Uh, now, the majority of people will not think you're being kind. Uh, in fact, they just like they responded to Jesus, the majority will respond to you with disgust and disregard and disinterest. Uh, but when you help them see their sin, you're actually showing 
concern and kindness to them. I'm not saying you have to stand on a street corner and shout at them, telling them what reprobate sinners they are. Uh, that's not nearly as effective as speaking to them in a way in which they understand that you care for them and you're concerned for them. And then you tell them the truth about their lost condition, using the law to help them see that they don't measure up to God's holy standards. Uh, and the Holy Spirit will work in the hearts of those who've been appointed to salvation and he will draw them to Christ for the forgiveness of their sin. And so here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is tearing off their mask so that they might see their sin. He's already shown them that in spite of what they thought, they were murderers. In spite of what they thought, they were adulterers. In spite of what they thought, they were uh, liars. Now he's going to show them that in spite of what they thought, they're filled with vengeful, spiteful, grudging spirits that are not characteristic of the kingdom of God. Jesus is reiterating God's standard to them, and he's saying, you fall short. Now, this passage has led to some confusion in many people's minds. Uh, people have used this passage to teach pacifism and conscientious objection to war and against capital punishment. Uh, that is not an untypical interpretation. Uh, in fact, the great Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy used this specific passage on the Sermon in the, on the Mount uh, to say that there should be no police, no armies, no soldiers, no authorities in society. And then he said we would have utopia. Uh, that was the theme of his greatest work, War and Peace. Uh, he may have been a great writer, but he wasn't much of a theologian. Uh, so uh, those ideas are utter nonsense. Uh, Jesus made it clear that he did not come to eliminate even the smallest part of God's law. And that includes respect for and obedience to human law and authority, except when they command you to do something that God's word forbids, or they forbid you to do something which God's word commands. But this passage has confused a lot of people. Uh, now you know me, and you know that we won't get through all of this this morning, but I, I want to lay the foundation, and hopefully it'll help get uh, you to get a start. And we're going to go through this using the same three major points that we've used with each one of these illustrations, which Jesus gives as he explains how they fail to meet God's holy standards. First, we're going to look at the principle of the Mosaic law, and then at the perversion of rabbinic tradition, and then finally the perspective of divine truth as Jesus explained it. So let's begin with the principle of the Mosaic law. Verse 38 again says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. This quote is taken directly from the Old Testament, uh, specifically uh, Exodus 21-24, uh, Leviticus 24-20, and Deuteronomy 19-21. It reflects the principle, let me put this up here for you, uh, the principle of what is known as lex talionis, which is Latin for the law of retaliation, uh, one of the most ancient legal codes. Uh, simply put, it required that the punishment exactly match the crime. 
Uh, the same idea is carried on in the expressions tit for tat and quid pro quo. Uh, the earliest record of lex talionis, although it wasn't, lex talionis is the Latin term for it that's come down through history, uh, but the earliest record of this law of retaliation was in the Code of Hammurabi, the great Babylonian king who lived 100 years or so before Moses. Uh, it's likely, however, that the principle was in wide use long before that time. Now, when you go back into those verses in the Pentateuch, you find that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth are actually part of longer lists, which include hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, and bruise for bruise. That's out of Exodus 21. And fracture for fracture in Luke, Leviticus 24. Now I've heard people say, oh, that's just terrible. That stuff is merciless. Uh, it's just bloodthirsty Old Testament stuff. And, and so, as you know, some of the critics of the Bible have claimed that the God of the Old Testament is a different God from the God of the New Testament. Uh, they say the God of the Old Testament is just so bloodthirsty and vengeful. Uh, all this eye-for-eye eye stuff is just over the top with retaliation and revenge. You know why people interpret it that way? Because that's the way the human heart is. Uh, that's not the way God's heart is, and that's not what it means in the Old Testament when it says that. So let me help you. Uh, starting in Exodus 20, you have the law of God basically codified and systematized. And in Exodus 20, you have the moral law that establishes the commandments of God regarding man's relationship to God and to others. But in Exodus 21 through 23, you have the civil law. Uh, the civil law was established to take care of the specific crimes and offenses between individuals and what the penalty was for each within the framework of magistrates and judges and courts and duly constituted authorities. So God established a legal system of jurisprudence in the Old Testament. Now then, there were three times in the Old Testament, as I said, where it says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is mentioned. All three times relate to a civil law situation. They relate to something occurring within the purview of a duly constituted authority, such as a judge or a magistrate. In both the Law of Moses and the Code of Hammurabi, the principle of punishment to match the crime had two basic purposes. The first was to curtail further crime. When a person is punished for his wrongdoing, Deuteronomy 19.20 says, the rest will hear and be afraid and will never again do such an evil thing among you. But the punishment must be quickly administered. Ecclesiastes 8.11 says, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. That's one of the major problems with the American judicial system. Uh, crimes are not punished quickly, and when they are carried out, they're often far less severe than they should be, thus causing the criminals to become even more bold with their evil. The second purpose was to prevent excessive punishment based on personal vengeance and angry retaliation. You remember how Lamech boasted 
I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Uh, he was an example of an evil man who was who executed personal vengeance on others at a level that was not equal to the offense. Uh, punishment was to match but not exceed the harm done by the offense itself. Uh, I've seen many such cases in which if the victim or the victim's family had been allowed to, they would have carried out far greater and excessive punishment on an offender than was allowed by law. Uh, but Lex Talionis prevented that. So this phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, is not a statement that is in any way related to personal relationships. But in fact, that's precisely what the Pharisees had done with it. They took a divine principle of judicial jurisprudence, a divine principle for the courts, and they made it a matter of daily vendettas. Now let me show you why I say that. Let's look at each of these three Old Testament passages where this phrase is mentioned. The first is in Exodus 21, verses 22 to 25. Exodus 21, 22 to 25. Civil law here. Moses wrote, If men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet there is no injury, he shall surely be fined as the woman's husband may demand of him, and he shall pay as the judges decide. In other words, if two guys are fighting with one another and accidentally strike a pregnant woman so that she prematurely gives birth, but the child is okay, there was to be a fine paid as determined by the judge. Uh, in other words, the husband has the right to seek some damages and the judge will determine what they will be. Uh, the husband doesn't get to get a club and beat the guy. That, this is not vigilante justice. Uh, this is not personal vengeance. In order for there to be structure in law and order, and in order for there to be a preservation of society, you cannot have personal vengeance. And so even in the Old Testament civil law, there were judges to deal with these matters. And so the judge determines what the penalty would be. And if the fight resulted in injury or death, look at verse 23. But if there is any further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. So the judge was to make sure that the punishment matched the crime. Verse 26. If a man strikes the eye of his male or female slave and destroys it, he shall let him go free on account of his eye. And if he knocks out a tooth of his male or female slave, he shall let him go on account of his tooth. In other words... You have a slave and you get mad at him and you bust him in the face and you damage or poke out his eye, then you have to let that slave free. You lost the benefit of having him serve you and bring financial benefit to you and he no longer had to work for the guy who injured him. And the same thing if you knocked out one of his teeth, you had to set him free. Uh, now please understand that in the world at that time, a slave had absolutely no rights. The Code of Hammurabi in it, there was no penalty for blinding your slave. Uh, you could do whatever you wanted to to a slave. But So this law ensured far better treatment for slaves 
in Israel than they received in other nations. Uh, God was providing protection for the weak and defenseless among the strong and mighty. He was protecting the good from the evil by saying there will be recourse, there will be just recourse for your actions. Now this is not a matter of personal vengeance. If you were a slave and your owner knocked out your tooth, you couldn't catch him at an unwary moment and knock his out. Uh, you would go to the court in Israel and you would say, this is what happened. And it would be confirmed by two or three witnesses and your just due would be given to you. You would be set free. And so this law would temper the master's treatment of his slaves because he knew that if he struck his slave and his slave lost a tooth, he lost the slave. In that society, that was a very high price to pay. Uh, after all, you paid a purchase price for the slave, and the slave worked in your fields producing crops, which you then sold and traded for other items of value. So a lost slave was lost revenue. There's a second use of this same phrase. Look over at Leviticus 24. Leviticus 24, verses 19 and 20. It says, if a man injures his neighbor, just as he has done, so it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, just as he injured a man, so it shall be inflicted on him. In other words, there was to be equity. The punishment had to fit the crime. The third time this phrase is used is Deuteronomy 19. This one is fascinating. Uh, Deuteronomy 19, beginning in verse 15, it says, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. So there was a requirement for sufficient witnesses to support the plaintiff's complaint. And because there were witnesses who were going to testify to what happened, this is clearly talking about a trial before a court, before a judge or a magistrate. Verse 16, if a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both the men who have the dispute shall stand before the Lord, before the priest and the judges who will be in office in those days. The judges shall investigate thoroughly and if the witness is a false witness and he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. So do you, you know how we could get rid of evil in our society? By speedily giving just punishment to people who commit crimes. And when someone lies and perjures themselves in order to get someone else convicted of a crime, Give him the punishment that he intended to have happen to the other person. Uh, verse 20. The rest will hear and be afraid and will never again do such an evil thing among you. Thus you shall not show pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Notice that there is to be no place in a law court for pity. Uh, pity is not in a law court. The law demands justice. If, just, if society is to be preserved uh, and preserved, there must be justice. The court is not a place for pity. It's a place to hold the standard of righteousness high. Uh, why? Because that and that alone will preserve 
society and put fear in the hearts of those who consider committing crimes. You see, when you take an innately sinful man with a depraved nature and give him rights, he will run right into chaos if you don't make consequences for his behavior. And it all starts with children. If there are no consequences for the behavior of children, they will never learn what it means to live a righteous life. Never. And so then in all three of these passages, you see that lex talionis, the law of retaliation, was for the civil courts. They even mentioned judges and magistrates several times. The point is this, the law was never to be taken into the hands of an individual. God knew that it would be utter chaos. You cannot have anarchy and preserve society. So the intent of the Mosaic law was to control sin, and in this sense, in this case, the sins of anger, violence, and revenge. And this statement, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, was intended to mean that the punishment must fit the crime no less and no more. It was a restraint on the innate vengeance that's in an evil heart. It didn't mean if you get hurt, get even. It meant that when justice functions, it must never go beyond its bounds. If, if it's only a tooth, then only a tooth should be taken in kind. Now understand that as time went by, by the time Jesus came, the Jews usually required monetary compensation rather than requiring someone's eye to actually be put out or their tooth to actually be knocked out. Uh, and that has continued until today. Uh, fines and restitution have been and continue to be used by courts rather than physical injury of a criminal. So then don't miss the point. This is a good law. It's a law to put fear in the hearts of people. That law doesn't do anything but good for righteous people. It just protects them. People say, oh, we just can't have those kind of laws. They encumber us. They're just so harsh. Listen, the stricter the law, the more protection for the righteous people. Uh, the only people who a strict law affects negatively are the people who ought to, it ought to affect negatively. Uh, evil people whose evil is out of control. Uh, I'm sure you know, maybe you don't, but both in both Saudi Arabia and Iran, when they catch a thief, they cut off his hand. Uh, it isn't done to first-time offenders or in minor cases. But if someone has multiple convictions for theft, they will do it. Uh, I read about a case, uh, cases that occurred as recently as 2014 and 2019. Uh, out of, of course, Amnesty International was screaming about the injustice of such torture and how important it is. Now, I'm not saying that I want the American judicial system to start cutting people's hands off, but I am saying that people are sinful, and if there aren't strict laws that are enforced so that it puts fear in their hearts, mankind will pursue an evil path. So it is a just law. Uh, Paul said in Galatians 6-7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. So God operates on that system. The same one that he gave to Moses. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So that's the principle of the Mosaic law. Now before we move any further into the, the perversion of the rabbinic tradition, let me just pause. 
to find out if there's any questions or comments. Here's Richard, I would expect, so. <laughs> anyway, I have, I have two questions. One is the cities of refuge where if you set foot out, you're subject to, is it, I can't remember the term. They allowed to the blood avengement of the... Right, the blood avenger or whatever. It's yes. Called. And then the second would be, in our system, the punitive damages. Okay, the first one. Let's deal with what that issue. City of refuge. The cities of refuge were set up for those cases where there was an accidental murder, or homicide, death, you know. Anytime somebody's killed, that's a homicide. It may be justifiable, it may be accidental, it may be premeditated, deliberate, whatever. But it's a, it's a murder. So in cases of accidental murder, uh, the person who committed it was allowed to flee to the city of refuge and had to stay there until the next high priest took office, which could be years or it could be, the guy was, you hoped he was really old and was going to die in a couple of years, but you had to stay there until then. And as long as you stayed in the city of refuge, the blood avenger could not come and take you. If you left the city of avenger, another part of the law allowed for the blood avenger to come and kill you. Uh, so that was part of the legal system. But it was set up and regulated. So now, as does that, does that apply to anything today, for example? No, not that I know of. Okay. Unless it's Seattle or someplace like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. The uh, uh, as far as punitive damages, punitive damages for those of you that don't know are are damages that are intended to punish the person. There's there are two types of damages, compensatory damages and punitive damages. Compensatory is, okay, you lost this leg in this crash and it affects you negatively so that we are going to pay you, uh, we, we believe it's a $250,000 loss. You can't earn your living. You can't earn your living, but it's worth 250000 Punitive damages is when the jury comes back and says, but this driver was driving 100 miles an hour. He was reckless. He was terrible. And so we're going to punish him by adding another million to the top of that. Uh, that's punitive damages. Uh, the that's not recognized in God's legal system here. Uh, his is eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Uh, now, so you would in that case, they would I think in God's system, it would all be included under comp compensatory and they would make sure, okay, the driver was driving 100 miles an hour. Uh, he was wrong. He was very reckless, et cetera, et cetera. And the, the damages would be set by the judges accordingly. Uh, but they wouldn't call it punitive damages. What about every seven years of Jubilee? That, that That's a setting of a slave free. Okay. So, okay. Anything else? Yes. Kind of ironic that in today's society, instead of punishing a criminal, they make a statute for it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I've heard about that. Let's talk about the perversion of rabbinic traditions. And what happened was that the Jews took Lex Talionis out of the law courts and they put it into their personal lives. Uh, and that became the way they operated in their relationships with vendettas and revenge and vengeance. 
Instead of seeing this law as a limit on how they were to carry out the law, they saw it as being an authorization for their personal acts of vengeance against others. And they would say, you can't do that to me. You can't step on my rights. You can't take my rights away. I'll get back at you. And so they would take whatever steps that they could through their courts to get even with those who they felt had harmed them or offended them in some way. Now, every city or town had a local court known as a bet din, uh, which held its sessions at the gate of the city. Uh, there were three judges who presided, presided over the court. Uh, the judges were local men who were at least 25 years old, who took time away from their regular jobs to serve as judges during the court sessions. Otherwise, they were simply tradesmen like everyone else in town. But during the court sessions, they would rule on any claims that came before them. Minor crimes and claims were referred to these small bet den courts. Let me, let me just write it here because you probably wonder what this is. It looks like Beth den in English, but it's bet den. Uh, and, but if something was more serious, it would be transferred to what was known as the lesser Sanhedrin, which were courts located in the larger, more important cities of the nation. The lesser Sanhedrin courts had 23 judges in them. They handled the serious crimes and significant legal claims between two people. If someone was convicted in a small bet den court, he could appeal his case to the nearest lesser Sanhedrin court. Then there was the great Sanhedrin, uh, which, is, which met in Jerusalem and was composed of 71 judges, all of them required to be at least 40 years old. Uh, it functioned, as you know, as both a court of judgment, but also as the national legislature. So it was the nation's Supreme Court, Congress, all wrapped into one. Uh, it not only interpreted the Mosaic Law and determined how it was to be applied, it also formulated the laws and statutes for the nation. It did handle appeals from the lesser Sanhedrin courts, especially in death penalty cases. Uh, it was the court uh, which the scriptures are referring to when it speaks of the Sanhedrin. Uh, scripture never refers to the lesser Sanhedrin courts. Anytime you see it talking about Sanhedrin, it's talking about the great Sanhedrin court in Jerusalem. Now, up until Rome conquered the Jews and Israel became part of the Roman Empire, the courts had the power of capital punishment and the authority to order the physical eye for an eye, tooth for tooth type of maiming of an individual who was convicted of harming another person. As I said, though, they normally... It had become a fine. Uh, for, in reality, for the crimes less than murder, uh, most of their punishment consisted of ordering fines and restitution or, or banishing the offender into exile. That was another thing they did. But then Rome came in, and Rome instituted their legal system, which had a very controlled system of governors and magistrates over them, and they took away the Jews' authority to carry out the death penalty. Uh, so the Jews might convict someone in their own court of a crime that they determined was worthy of death, but they had to get the Romans to approve it. And the same thing applied in all of the judgments 
involving permanent injury to a convicted person. Rome had to impose the sentence if it was to be carried out. And in a good sense, in a, in a sense, it's a good thing Rome did that. Uh, because otherwise, if the Jews had been in control, the scribes and Pharisees would have used the law of retaliation to justify all kinds of punishments because they interpreted an eye for an eye law of retaliation as a command to get even with their enemy. Uh, they were already doing everything they could to get even with anyone who offended them in any way, and they justified it on the basis of this misinterpretation of the Old Testament law. Uh, they turned a, a system, uh, a, a regulation that limited how the courts administered justice into a command to get even with their opponents. Uh, they turned this rule into one which was not only for judicial courts, but also one of private retaliation. And thus they used the Old Testament scriptures to justify their vindictive tempers that forgave no one of anything. And now Jesus comes along and he upsets their entire apple court. Apple cart. Uh, <laughs> slip of the tongue there. Uh, and I was going to say, it's time to dive into what he said, but I'm looking at the clock and I'm going, no, I'm not going to start that as to Jesus' perspective. But at least we leave here knowing that this was not a matter of personal retaliation. It was not to be involved in any sort of vendetta. This was entirely a matter, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, was entirely a matter of how the courts were to carry out justice. That's the whole rule. Any questions or comments before we go? And now you know how the Jewish legal system worked too. Bet den courts. Okay. Anything? All right. Well, we will stop there, and next week we will pick up with what Jesus had to say about this. And four areas, he covers four areas of their lives, four human rights that he says, it's not what you think it is. So, all right, Frank, close this please. Our God and our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you clear things up for us.